Empty Frames is an independent production. The commentary expressed here is our own and does not reflect the opinions of the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum or its staff. To learn more about the museum, including the 1990 theft, please visit the museum's website at www.isgm.org. If you have any critical information relating specifically to the 1990 theft, please contact the museum's security director via the options provided on the museum's website. The museum continues to offer a reward totaling $10 million for information that can lead to the return of the stolen artwork. We are bothered by the loss the art world suffered in 1990, and we are not content with the status quo. One stolen painting to note is from Manet, a French artist who created Che Tortoni, circa 1880. It's an elegant depiction of a man sketching a half-consumed beer on the table as he calmly looks at his audience. We started this podcast to raise awareness of the theft and to show our support for the ongoing recovery efforts. While those recovery efforts progress as they do daily, we encourage our listeners to visit the museum, to appreciate its incredible collection, both past and present, and to donate directly to the museum through its website. Again, if you enjoy this podcast and you feel as we do about the missing artwork, the most productive way for you to express your view is to donate directly to the Gardner Museum via its website. Go to isgm.org and look for the Join and Give tab, where there are options to make a donation of any size to support the museum's mission. Please donate today. And when you do, let us know on Twitter so we can personally thank you there. Thanks again. On March 18, 1990, the most audacious art heist of all time took place at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston. Two men dressed as police officers were admitted into the building by security, claiming to be responding to a disturbance call. In 81 minutes, 13 pieces of art were stolen. Among the portraits stripped from their frames were works by Vermeer, Degas, and Rembrandt. Estimated at half a billion dollars, the heist has been categorized as the largest and most frustrating of all time. Theories of their whereabouts and those who perpetrated the crime are abundant. In this podcast series, we will dig as deep as possible into the case, the theories, and the social and economic impact the greatest unsolved art heist of all time had on the community. This is Empty Frames, a heist story. Welcome back to Empty Frames. I'm Tim here today with Lance in the Crawl Space Wormtown Studios. How's it going, Lance? Pretty good. How are you? I'm doing well today. This interview we have, Lance, is really fascinating. It's with Marjorie Gallus, who is a former worker at the Gardner Museum. As these things go with us, when we look into uh, certain cases, we let the case take us where where it goes, and we follow that direction. And the direction it's been going lately has been former guards. We uh, spoke with Jeffrey Rockwell, who was a guard right before the heist. And here we talked to Marge, who was employed by the museum right before and, and during the, the heist. And as far as I know, this hasn't been public, what she, what she's had to, what she says here. Not that I know of either, and it's kind of bombshell-y, Lance. So uh, let, let's waste no more time, and let's just play this interview, and you can let us know what you think on Twitter at empty underscore frames. We're also on Instagram and Facebook. Join in the conversation. Let us know what you think of this interview. Hope you like it. Thank you for listening. Marge, welcome to Empty Frames. How are you today? I'm good. I'm very well. Thank you. Marge, you were a guard at the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in 1988. Is that correct? Sounds so long ago and far away, but yes, that is correct. You performed your duties as a guard. What were these duties as a guard? Not to be confused with night watch. Well, in 1988, I was strictly a gallery guard at that point. I didn't become a, a person that worked at the watch desk, uh, alarm control operator, until probably um, late in 89 or 90. In 88, I was still a college student, and I would 
work part-time as a gallery guard, you know, during the days uh, overseeing visitors as they came into the galleries and making sure that they weren't touching anything or doing anything devious. Did you have a lot of experience with people doing anything devious or was it a pretty low low uh, impact job? Not Nothing devious, and I don't know why I pulled that word out of the air. It's just a good word. I, I think for the most part, it was just ensuring that people were being respectful of the art and not touching the art. I didn't have any experience, uh, any experiences with anyone trying to lift anything or, or steal anything. I don't think anything like that at, at that time occurred in the museum. So neither I nor any of the, my colleagues at that point really experienced any anyone doing you know anything nefarious like that another good word for you love that word did you work there during the heist i did so during that period it was several years later and i had graduated from college um it was i had taken a different job initially and still continued doing the gallery guard i'm giving you a little a little background up to the heist um I got offered the job in the alarm control center at some point. I, I don't recall the date and left the full-time job. I had, uh, it was working at a store called Charette's, which was an art supply store. So I left that, took on the um, alarm control center slash receptionist job. So what my responsibilities were at that time, I was the person that basically worked Monday through Friday during that main shift, I think it started at 7.30 and went to 3.30. So it was basically the bulk of the day when staff were arriving, when contractors were arriving during the, you know, open hours of the museum while the visitors were there entering. I oversaw everything from the back end, oversaw the activities of the museum and handled phone calls and assisted the staff with their needs. So, you know, a, a lot of that sort of recep re receptionist slash administrative type of work, but also still monitoring um, and ensuring the safety of the museum. Okay. And that was what you did at the alarm control center. That's right. That's what it was called at the time. I think it was called, security desk slash alarm control slash uh, receptionist. You know, nice hyphenated title. It sounds so official. <laughs> or I, I might have created that title over time. <laughs> I'm not exactly sure what the title was called when I... It might have just been watch desk. What, what, what drew you to this job? Was it the museum? Was it the, the art? Were you a fan of the art? At the time when I started working, when I was a gallery guard, I was an art major. I went to Emmanuel College and I was getting a my BFA in studio art. So having the ability to work in an art museum that was curated by a well-known uh, woman in Boston society um, and a creation that was very eclectic. Uh, that covered a lot of different periods and a lot of different masters was a fantastic opportunity. You know, just to, to be in that environment was a fantastic opportunity. So I think that was what drew me, um, not necessarily being a security guard, but, you know, that also, I guess, had a, a specific appeal to to be the person that had that responsibility to keep that artwork safe. I've I feel at the time, and I would still now if I was about to approach that sort of career again, I would take that sort of responsibility very seriously. Yeah, that's that's really cool that um, you know you had the opportunity to take your 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 interest in studio art and and you had this opportunity to go into the Isabella Stewart Garden Museum. And as we talk to more people, we find that that's kind of the case we've we've spoken to other night watch people we spoke to um, a gentleman uh, jeffrey rockwell and he was a night watchman over there right before the heist happened he's at, he actually lives in new york right now as an artist but that was oh, cool. you know that's what he was going to school for and um i think uh that draws a lot of people to it like it drew you to it yeah i think um any any anyone that you would find working at an art museum i think they're there because they have an interest in either that artistic application or 
just being in an environment that inspires that creativity. The Gardener attracted a lot of musicians as well. And at that time, and still to this day, I, I've been to the Gardener. I no longer live in Massachusetts, but when I when I return, I've had the opportunity to go back and, and see the new um, wing that was built and the fantastic concert hall that they have. And music has always been a big part of what the Gardener offered. Uh, so I think that attracted a lot of the music- musicians as well to be in that environment, to have those opportunities to work in that gallery at that time anyways, in the gallery where the concerts were held. Um, and, and just to be inspired by, you know, a creative setting and the creative type of people that come to, or the people that have an interest in art that come to visit the museum. Yeah, it's really interesting that you say that because there's not a lot of focus that goes on uh, the the music aspect of the museum. That's uh, it, It's cool that there's a bunch of different angles that pulled people in to, uh, you know, to be employed there just to experience and be in that world. Sure. And, and I think the courtyard is another one, too. You know, I don't know if people necessarily would apply to work in the museum because they have an interest in horticulture. But, you know, I think that that element, that that life that's brought into the museum, the aspect of something that's living and growing and colorful and beautiful in its own creation just adds to the experience of what the museum's about. What are your thoughts on the stolen artwork, your uh, your memories of them? There's a lot of different contexts around that, that question. Um, I, I think the first thing I think of when I think of the stolen artwork is just the way that some of it was lifted, in particular the storm on the Sea of Galilee, where you know I think it's well reported and established that the painting was cut out of its frame and severely damaged where conservation found paint chips on the floor so when i think about the stolen artwork i i first think about what condition is it in now you know not only does the question linger of who who's in possession of it or where it might possibly be kept but just is it in some sort of airproof container or is it just in some sort of box where the elements are getting to it and further ravishing it. So, you know, when I, when I think of the art, I, the, those are the elements that come to mind first. But if you, if I think about it before the robbery, um, when one was able to experience it and be in front of it, I mean, they were all very unique pieces and, and very rare pieces. I love the story and the, 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 the composition and just the expression that was captured in Storm of the Sea of Galilee. It, you know, it's it's interesting when you think back on that painting to see the men on this on the ship over, you know, hurling overboard, being sick, caught in the storm. Um, I also I think a lot about the the Vermeer because that was a very unique piece. I don't think I had encountered a Vermeer before working at the Gardener. So it was, again, another one that was very interesting to look at in a composition, in the level of its composition. Um, And my favorite, now I'm forgetting the name of my favorite, which is a little embarrassing, but there was a a Monet painting that was stolen from the, the Blue Room. And again, it was something that just captured this expression this um this gentleman i always imagined he was in some sort of london cafe drinking a aperitif he had this sort of sly look in his eye looking towards yes. the uh towards the viewer so that that was a, a painting that i always enjoyed that's uh that's, looking at that's tim's favorite as well che oh, tortoni that's the che tortoni yeah. yeah yeah love that one You were there when the heist happened. I worked at the museum. I wasn't. I wasn't. Obviously, I was. I wasn't. Randy or or. I was, I was trying to. He's trying to catch you. Where were you the night of? There, I think that must have been such a crazy time. At that time, I lived with a group of of guys that had all either applied to work at the Gardener or were working at the Gardener. I think there were there were three of us that were 
gardener employees that all lived together. <clears throat> and one of the guys that was there during the robbery was my roommate at the time. <clears throat> so it was particularly odd to have that close of a connection. So not only was I working there, but, you know, was rooming with someone that was directly involved that had been tied up and threatened and had this horrible experience um, that those guys undertook. So I'm sorry to you know that your roommate is the other guard, not um, Abbott, not Rick. Right. Correct. Uh, what, what was his name? Randy. What was the, the talk between you three and, and like the other, the other folks that you worked with? Did, uh, did everyone have a theory? Because was it right away that the idea that there was potentially an inside angle, did that pop up publicly like right away? Where was everyone at the gardener talking about that? Well, I think initially it was just a shocking circumstance. Um, just to go back and I will answer your question, but just to go back a little bit to your previous question about what was it like that the night I had worked a night shift the night before the robbery. And then the night of the robbery, it was St. Patrick's day. Uh, we had my roommates and I, we had people come over I had already done a double shift. I didn't want to, I got called to go in. I didn't want to because I, wanted to be able to enjoy the company coming over, you know, and enjoy St. Patrick's day and drink a Guinness. Um, so that was where my priorities, you know, stood that evening to go back to your question. So Randy, you know, after that period, that was a traumatic experience. Um, and just like any sort of traumatic experience, I think he experienced a lot of, feelings and emotions and probably a lot of fear. He didn't really, he was never an extremely verbose guy to begin with. And he became far less. So after that period, he retreated and didn't really want to talk um, much about anything. So he and I, and any of the other guards or roommates or people, you know, we never, we never sat around and, and theorized about what had happened I think for myself personally, because I worked there during the day, I've developed my own theories about who who it could have been just from the experiences that I had with different people that I had encountered, you know, weeks or, or months before that event. Um, I'm sure you probably want me to go on about that. Yes, please. <laughs> you know, there at that time, I think it was either this beginning of the construction of the um uh, the glass the glass panels on the roof and and forgive me for getting i think it was a climate control project uh there might have been a, a more specific um term for it and you'll have to forgive me because it's been, it's been a little while um but there were a lot of you know a lot of different workmen coming in and out and most of them were very respectful but just before that time, and I had told the FBI about this at, at the time because they interviewed every single person that worked at the museum. There was a man that um, at one point was very disrespectful, disobedient. Um, he had he would try to stand he would try to work his way back behind my desk. So there was a little gate, you know, it wasn't it was just a swinging gate. Uh, it wasn't something that you could block or anything, but you know, it clearly was a door that you wouldn't enter if you weren't invited to enter. Uh, so he would try to work his way back behind the desk and I had to, you know, tell him you're not, not allowed back here. Then he wanted to go into the security office, which was just to the left of the desk. And I also told him, you know, you're, you cannot be in that office either. You can't make phone calls or do personal business in that office. I can't allow you in there. And the guy, I mean, I'm behind the desk. I'm not in front of that office. The guy got into the office anyhow. So I had to call one of the supervisors on duty that day because he just wouldn't listen to me. He went into the office, he closed the door 
he was in there for a while doing who knows what. That's where at that time, and, and this isn't any new information for you, that's where all of the uh, recording devices for the tapes were were kept. That's where the thieves had broken into that door and stole those recording devices. It seems like there were it was an inside job, especially from information that's come to light even in the last you know couple of years. But there also was that there were opportunities for people to gather information in these sort of activities that they were doing, like like that being in an area that they weren't supposed to be in completely disobeying the the young person who had held the authority but couldn't you know physically keep them from going into the room these were these were workmen that were putting um the 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 solar panels or whatever on the roof of the museum this was one particular um supervisor and i don't at this point, I, I no longer remember what company he worked for. At the time, I would have been able to identify him. He wasn't one of the workmen themselves, but he was the supervisor of one of the construction companies. And there were so many different ones at that point because there were there were roofers and there were you know glass guys and there were I don't know lots of other different types of guys. Do you remember that guy's name? Uh, I I I don't I don't. I don't remember the company or the name. And maybe if I saw a picture, I might be able to identify him. But yeah, I, I, there's I can't remember his name from this long ago. That's incredible information. Uh, for for the record, we had not heard that. But uh, you you had told that to the uh, the FBI, I take it. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I don't know what the FBI has done with any of the information they've received. Uh, I, it, there was something the Boston Globe did um, maybe a, a year or two ago. They had a story. It was when the, the tape was released that showed the person entering the museum the night before. And there was a big, um, a big discussion about who is this guy that entered? Was this a practice run? for the, Because it was the night before. There was a question of if it was a practice run. And I actually called the tip line because I, it, although the video was grainy and old, I was, I'll say, 99% certain it was the, the security supervisor uh, that had been on duty, you know, earlier that evening. Um, he had forgotten his wallet and had returned to the museum, museum to pick up the wallet. And if one looks very closely at that video, you can actually see... You know, at that time, people had those photo inserts in their wallet. Um, so you can see the light kind of bouncing off of the plastic photo insert as the wallet's being looked through. It's it's far in the like sort of left corner of that video, but it's pretty apparent that, especially when you know that detail, that that's what is, is happening. Um, so I had left information with the FBI about, you know, who I was why I had this uh, certainty, the fact that I worked there during the day, the fact that Larry O'Brien had been my supervisor, the fact that he had worked, you know, that night before and had just returned. Um, And they never, I never got a call back and to this day still haven't received a call back. The FBI went on records. We're we're calling you here on empty frames, Marge. We we got you. (laughs) We're taking over. All right. Um, <laughs> there's so the, much to unpack FBI here. Hold, hold on a second. On hold, hold <laughs> on a second up. here. <laughs> so, okay, just just want to confirm. You you're saying Larry O'Brien is the guy in the video from the night before? Yeah, I'm I'm very certain. Okay, and and going back to the previous uh, thing we were talking about. So that this this fellow from one of the construction companies who snuck behind into this security room, you said he was in there for a while. And, and this is the room where all the tapes are and all. I imagine this is the, the security room where the thieves must have been that night to have taken out the uh, the tape that showed the thieves faces. Is that correct? Yep, that's correct. And so how long was this guy in there? Um, it probably was five or ten minutes. It was until a security supervisor could come back to the desk to help me. And so you called your security supervisor, which was, I guess at that time, would that have been Larry O'Brien? I think that day it was a different supervisor. Okay. Um, 
I'm trying to remember. I remember what he looked like, but again, I can't remember his name. Uh, he was a taller guy with brown hair. I, I don't think that description really helps you, but it wasn't Larry wasn't the supervisor that I called that particular time. So what did this fellow say after he after the security uh, person got him out of the room? And I, I imagine you weren't too happy with him. Did he have any explanation for what he was doing in there? I think the security supervisor would have asked him that. I didn't have further contact with him at that point. I think I was probably on the phone at the point when he came out of the room. And even if I wasn't, I, I think he probably just, you know, smugly walked away. Or he didn't acknowledge me or have any, he didn't apologize or anything like that. And But that's a weird act during the, the course of your run at, at that job. That was unusual. Not, not a lot of people did that kind of thing? No, no. I mean, people were mostly respectful. People came in. The, the, the procedure was they came in, they logged in, they were given a badge, uh, a little ID badge that had a number so that we could track um the, the number was put by their name, so you could track that badge ID. I think that's probably information that the FBI gathered, I would imagine, because I, I actually was asked by one of the Boston Globe guys about an ID that was that was found. Um, but for me, there's no way at this point to be able to really comment much about that without record, you know, the records or a record of the day and if that who that badge would have been given to and why it wouldn't have been turned in. Like I had mentioned to you before, I, I left at three 30. So if there were secure, uh, sorry, if there were construction people that stayed after that point, the other, the next shift would have been responsible for gathering those IDs. But yeah, the guys usually came in, they checked in, they did that login. Um, a security supervisor, another person on duty generally escorted them to where they were going to be working and then they were often escorted out when they were done with their their job there were intercoms throughout the building that they could call down and let us know when they were finished Back to that security room real quick. Is that the kind of thing like you could like, did you know from, from your position, like what you would have had to have done to get rid of the evidence if you were going to let your friends in to the museum? Do you know what I mean? Like as far as where the tapes are and things like that. You know, I mean, I know I knew where the devices were that recorded the tapes. I don't know if any of us would have, tampered with those or you know tried to erase something i think that would become pretty apparent if someone was trying to tamper with or erase tapes like if if you're suggest suggesting that a guard let their friends in and then tried to modify the tape to clear out that part i think that would be pretty evident that that happened well i guess to be transparent what i'm trying to ask or or wonder is how many people in the museum especially at the the guard level or the night watchman level would have known you know exactly where in that room they would have had to have gotten uh tapes out of is that just like something you can just walk in there and spend like five minutes like uh mystery guy mystery construction guy did and you can just you know, relay that information to uh, to Thief 1 and Thief 2, and they're in and out of there, and that's that. I, I would think so. It wasn't a huge office. It wasn't, and you know, it wasn't highly sophisticated technology like maybe today's technology. It was, you know, v, VHS tape type stuff on a big black box with, uh, you know, a little TV monitor that showed the screen. So I think it was pretty apparent even, even trying to think back exactly of what it looked like. I mean, I remember it was sort of to the right or uh, the door was on the, the door was flush against the wall, but it was to the right of the desk. So if you, so you enter, say the doors on your left hand side, the desk is on your right hand side that 
equipment was right next to the desks. It wasn't hard to figure out. There wasn't, it wasn't a okay. huge office. Right. So it wasn't like a, like a Vegas casino security room right. or something yeah, like it's that. Not, it, it wasn't like a mission impossible with you know 50 <laughs> screens all around. Yeah, no, it was pretty simplified. <laughs> So when this happened and you lived with uh, your roommates with other employees and other guards of the museum, how long was it before the FBI contacted you guys? How long was it before they knocked on the door? Of, I'm, I'm imagining the apartment that the four, was it four of you lived in? Six of us that lived there, but um, the FBI inquiries were all done at the museum because they interviewed everyone that worked at the museum so they never came to our house to interview us. I was just interviewed as part of the staff. What kind of questions did they ask you? I do remember they, they asked about drugs. There was a big focus about people smoking pot at the watch desk or on in the museum or gallery guards taking drugs or something like that. So they, they asked questions about that. Um, I told them about the, the guy, that story that I just shared with you, um, and I told them about any other strange calls or things that would have happened at that point. I don't remember specifically the questions that I asked because it was a it was a intimidating scenario where for me I was placed in a I wasn't placed in a seat, but I was escorted to a seat and told to sit down. And the two there were two guys and they stood over me. And you know, at the time I was I don't know twenty two, twenty three or something around there. And, um, you know, it's the FBI. It's, 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 it, it was a, a scary scenario to be in, regardless of whether you had done anything, anything to feel uncomfortable about. It just was uncomfortable to have these two government officials staring down at you. You knew Richard Abbott. Um, you referred mm-hmm. to him as, as Rick. What, what was he like? I mean, he was a musician also. I actually, I like Rick. I didn't have any problem with Rick. It's interesting over time to have read different articles or, you know, uh, material that's come out about the the robbery or, or Rick or the stipulations about Rick. I mean, Rick, Rick was a smart guy. I, I, I don't think anyone, and, and actually, if I, I'm going to sidestep for a second, a, a thing that ha- t- tends to happen is this perception of guards being, you know, a bunch of young jokesters that don't really care about what they're doing, don't care about their job. But I feel the people that were employed, although we were all artists of some nature, we were all intelligent people. Um, Maybe there were some people that cared more about their job than others, just like any job. One of the things I found interesting about him, I learned that for a while he had been a deadhead and he followed the Grateful Dead. And that's something I I don't want to use that as a describer for him. But at that time, I had never met anyone that, you know, followed a band around. So I found that interesting. (laughs) Um, But we used to, I mean, we just like I did with many of the other guards at the time, we hung out socially a few times and went to a few parties or I remember one time going to his house and having a cup of tea with him. Um, I, that sounds so civilized. And it, and it was, you know, he, he was a decent, at least to me, he was a decent guy. Um, did, did he ever happen to mention the Che Tortoni speak, speaking of, did he ever happen to be like, uh, yeah, I really love that painting. Yeah. I know where this one's going. Cause I've heard about this too. Um, no, we never talked much about uh, the the museum or the art in the museum. We talked more about when we got together, we talked more about music and um, different bands that we were interested in um, and things, things like that. So, but what about the motion detectors? I guess, I guess my, my question ultimately boils down to that, right? So the motion detectors at the museum, uh, showed that the thieves, the the two thieves who were let into the museum that night, never made it into the blue room, which is where the Che Tortoni hung on the wall. And so, based on those the the motion detectors, it, it it would imply that one of the guards took the Che Tortoni off the wall that night. Yeah, I mean, I I don't really feel qualified to 
to, to talk about that or discuss it because I don't know anything about that. I was never really privy to what the motion detect- detectors um, discovered or, or recorded. Um, I mean, I guess that's what the evidence points to, but I don't know. It, it's, it doesn't seem very realistic or, or logical to me. I know I'm aware that the last person that was recorded in, in the room was Rick per, you know, the, um, the swipes that he did with the reader. Um, I guess Randy never made it on a round through that room when the robbery occurred, but it seems like there'd be a lot of um, maneuvering to, to get that painting out the way the watch desk worked at that point one person was always at the desk while the other one either did rounds or went to the bathroom or ate dinner or whatever the scenario was. So for Rick to, I, I've heard a theory about Rick placing up it outside the door or something like that for Rick to have done something like that. He would have had to walk past Randy, you know, with the painting hidden and gone outside for, you know, some inexplicable reason or made up some sort of excuse to Randy to get outside. So, you know, there's some working parts that would have to be in action for that to have occurred. That, that's all I really can say about it. I've never really, to me, it seems kind of far-fetched. It's hard to imagine that he would have done that, but, you know, just like any sort of scenario when someone's done something quite horrible the first thing people say is i can't believe that person did that he never struck me as the type so you know i i i don't know well the 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 scenario is really interesting because the thieves took 81 minutes to do what they did so that Mm -hmm. means that they knew that there was really no emergency obviously people go to the inside angle um aspect of it but if there wasn't, it's sort of a contradiction. If there was an inside angle and they knew they had all the time in the world, why would Rick take that painting and put it outside to save time? You know, when he already knew that, you know, like if there was an inside angle, why would he try to facilitate or expedite anything when it really doesn't matter because you had pretty much all night? Exactly. I, I don't know. And it's not like that room was locked or hard to access or anything like that. So yeah, I I don't know. Right. So I guess my, my point in that was not so much a question, just like the motion detectors go off and people go to, well, who was in there? It was a, well, the guards, the night watchmen were in there and no, it, it could be somebody, it, you know, it doesn't have to be those people. It could have been somebody that had, you know, placed themselves in there. There's just a lot more that encapsulates that, that moment there that some people just don't think of, I guess. What, what about th- those guys, uh, like, like your, your, your old roommate and Rick, uh, you know, in the days and weeks afterwards, um, you guys must have talked about the investigation because I'm pretty sure Rick was, uh, what you know? I, I, I'm pretty sure the FBI thought he was their inside source for a long time. I don't know if they still do or what the story is, but I mean, I think it's commonly uh, believed for him to have been. And I'm certainly, by the way, not saying that we think that. We're actually trying to do our best to prove the opposite here on this show. Mm-hmm. Uh, I never really had much discussion after the robbery with Rick, to be honest. And as I mentioned earlier, Randy really retreated and didn't really, you know, it it took him a while to recover from that incident. So we didn't have discussions. I didn't have discussions with those guys about the robbery at all. I mean, regardless whether it is factual or not that Rick was involved with that, I, I think the scenario of being tied up, being duct taped and put into the basement of the museum and down there for hours, not knowing how long it's going to be before someone finds you. Um, a pretty horrifying scenario. Um, so I don't, those guys didn't want to talk about it, you know? Yeah. So Randy never confided in you and said, 
you know, this is what happened that night. He got a call on his walkie talkie and it was Rick. And he said that there were police at the front. So he never, he no, just kind of, he no, just we, withdrew. We didn't, we didn't talk about it. That's interesting. I mean, it's, became, it's obvious, but it's, you know, we why became roommates did. years later in a different apartment, a uh, different scenario with much fewer people. But even at that point, we didn't, we didn't reflect upon that that time you know we didn't sit around and and talk about it that's crazy to think of because i think a lot of people who listen to this show and myself included i would like to think that i would remember every detail and you know but anyway people who listen to the show are so used to having you know every piece of their personal lives put out there and everyone sort of knows something about you but back then that that wasn't even there like social media didn't exist and and people and i can totally see somebody like your roommate and someone like randy just withdrawing and saying, I don't really want to talk about it. And there's no reason for me to talk about it because it's done. And I've told everything I need to tell to the, to law enforcement. Like how, how much would you want to talk about something that was really disturbing in your life? Well, that's, that's exactly what I'm saying. You, you go on Facebook or Twitter and people talk about anything that they want, no matter how disturbing, because it gets them attention back then people like, I wouldn't want to talk about it now. I probably wouldn't want to talk about it then. There was no reason to get it out there. Right. And it's sort of akin to, and I, I don't want to say that they were hit or anything like that, but it, it was a form of attack. These people came and they threatened them. They took their wallet. They said things like, we know where the, where you live or we know how to get, we know how to access your family. I think it, it was frightening. It, it's easy for us to, to look back and there's been a lot of reporting about how the these weren't very professional and the fact that they cut the painting out. But that doesn't mean to say that they weren't highly intimidating themselves or, you know, I don't know what type of tone they used in their voice or, you know, what their body language was like or how strong they were if they grabbed them at all. I mean, I don't know about things like that, um, but you can imagine if you're – even if you're walking down the street and someone tries to mug you and says, you know, I've got your wallet now and I know, I know how to access everything about you. Even now it's even more serious because of all the, uh, you know, identity fraud. That wasn't such an issue there at that time, but still it's scary to have someone be able to claim that they're going to come back and get you, you know, and, you don't know if they have a gun and they tie you up. And both of those guys were hairy guys with beards. And, you know, the, the duct tape did a real mess without going into detail about that. You can use your own imagination about how painful that would be to have that pulled off of you. And, you know, I, I think it would be I think it would be extremely terrifying to go through that. I agree. And I think anytime someone takes something by force, I think it's it's not a pleasant situation. So it's going to be nasty no matter what and scary. And yeah. it actually makes me think like even if, you know, one of those, just for example, one of those guys like let them in uh, that night, you know, b- because they had contact with them before, it doesn't mean that it was willingly it doesn't mean that they weren't threatened to do that. It doesn't mean that they weren't really tied up and weren't really threatened, even if they were, you know, had been contacted before. Yeah, 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 that's an interesting point. I want to go back real quick to the uh, the video from the night before um, and just be clear about one one thing the older gentleman in the video who is not possibly larry o'brien the older gentleman with the glasses who appears in the video is that the guard who called out yes yeah, okay. his name was uh malvi i think it was joseph malvi you still talk to uh rick and randy no i haven't talked to either of them in in many years the last I had, the last I had heard from Randy, he had moved to Germany. He he was a, a trombone player, and he got a, um, 
he got a position in a, a band in Germany, so he went out there. I believe he's back at this point, but um, yeah, no, I, I, I've fallen out of contact with him. And, and with Rick, I basically, you know, after the robbery, he he wasn't comfortable in the museum any longer. And, you know, um, I don't, I can't remember if he was fired or if he left of his own accord, but once he left the museum, like we basically lost touch as well. Was there a big drop off in employees after the heist? I don't really recall. I don't, I don't remember. I mean, there were a lot of changes, obviously that, that, uh, were, went that the museum went through um but it wasn't like there was a mass firing or anything like that um to me in as odd as this will sound it was one of it was one of the most memorable working experiences that i that i've had to date uh because it was something it was a time the museum was always quite a lot like a family but it was a time when that family really everyone pulled together um, everyone really worked hard to lift the museum back up and everyone supported each other. It, it, it sounds so, it sounds so, um, minor to say it like that. It's kind of a hard thing to describe, but it was a scenario where, you know, it was, it was a difficult situation that the museum was going through and it just, it just was nice to have everyone just support each other and, you know, put in the extra hours and put in the extra effort and put on their best face and um, not crumble under the pressure and, and, you know, perform really well. So it's something I'm not happy that the, that the robbery happened, but it was an interesting and working environment uh, to, to be part of at that time. The way you describe it, it's it's amazing to me. It sounds like almost like a like a tight knit family who's kind of gets even closer because of this tragedy, great family tragedy that happens. It's it kind was, of amazing. That is exactly what it was like. I just have a couple more questions. Uh, one of them is about the video from the night before again. When did you when did you first see it, and how did you first see it? I think a friend shared uh, shared it with me because uh, you know a lot of my friends will. A lot of my friends joke about, oh, you know, there's another thing with the the robbery. <laughs> um, or Marge, where did you hide the paintings? You know, I, people joke like that. Um, <laughs> I guess, I'm sure or, you find those jokes hilarious. Well, it's, I mean, it's 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 funny. I mean, <laughs> if you saw my one bedroom apartment, you would know that I clearly do not own any million dollar paintings of any nature. Whoa, whoa! whoa. How do you know um, they're a million dollars? <laughs> But yeah, some someone had sent me uh, the link, so I, I checked it out and watched it, and yeah, it just that's how I discovered it. And then I think the link was part of the Boston Globe article. Maybe they sent the whole article, or I might have dug a little bit and found the article. Either way, I, I read the article and read you know the theories about like some antique dealer or something like that. So it inspired me to call the FBI line and, and just share the information I had. And I also sent an email to the, the Boston Globe just saying, you know, I, I, I want to highlight the fact that you have written this because I, I disagree with you guys. Okay, so you volunteered the information to the FBI and you did not hear back. Correct. And you volunteered information to the Boston Globe and what was their response? I did. Steve Kirchen, who's written, he wrote the book Master Thieves, got in touch with me right away. And, and we've ha- we've maintained a correspondence and we, we've talked about uh, different theories and different ideas that he's, he's had over the last couple of years. So he was very interested in what I had to say. Was there any part of the conversation that came up where anyone speculated as to why that video was released if if the FBI if law enforcement had this video and then they released it in 2015 we know that Larry O'Brien died in 2014 they released it about a year later after he died had any did, did anyone ask between the people that you've spoken with did, did the feds talk to Larry O'Brien and say are you the guy in this video I 
I wondered why the video was released at that time. Actually, Steve has a very knowledgeable explanation about that, which I can't remember. I I don't know if the FBI talked to Larry O'Brien or questioned him. I know Steve reached out to Larry's brother because Larry had passed away and Larry's brother claimed it wasn't him. And I guess Lyle is Lyle is still um, Lyle's capacities are limited at this point, uh, and he wasn't really um, much help, I think, in the identifying process. You're talking about Lyle Grindle, the um, correct? Yeah, yeah. Okay. The was he the head of security then? Yes, he okay. was the head of security at that time. Right, and and um, Larry's brother David, when they. I think he was like 81 or something when when they asked him about the video and he said, "No, I think my brother's hair was a little bit longer or something." It didn't seem like when I when I read that it was nothing that struck me as something that was a definitive, you know. It's kind of tough to tell whether that guy's hair is long or short in that video. Yeah. Larry was not a Larry was not um Larry was a difficult person for a female to work with and uh, several several of us had situations with him, so he was an easy person for us to remember quite clearly because of the issues that we all had with him. I, what kind of issues did you have with him? <laughs> it's like a whole nother. It's a whole nother. Um, I know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> We've been going for fifty-five minutes, yeah, and you we'll, drop that. We'll bomb take show. you. We'll get you on crawl space for that. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it was different forms of sexual harassment. Wow. Different and and repeating with different employees. Correct. Wow. I'm sorry. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. Really. Yeah, he had. There were issues with with some of the other people. I think he eventually might have even been fired be, because of it. I wasn't involved with that, but um, yeah, I think that is ultimately what happened. Did you have to go through background checks to get the job at the gardener? I'm sure that we did. You know, the application process that was so long. That was so long ago because that's we're going back to 1988. I mean, I'm, I'm sure I filled out some sort of application. I would imagine they did some sort of background check, but, you know, I wasn't involved with HR or, or how they did things. So, and I, I can't remember what was asked on the, you know, job form. And now our buddy, Mr. K makes a rare appearance and asks Marge a few questions. Was it common for employees to enter the museum after hours? No, no, it wasn't. When Larry entered, I mean, he was a supervisor. Um, there, it is curious that, uh, I guess it's curious about the way he he was buzzed in or didn't use his pass key. Um, I think it's kind of cut out from the video, so it's hard to see if he actually had his pass key, but his car is identifiable as his. I think he just pulled up and wanted to get in, get his wallet. He wasn't as, as that video shows, he wasn't there for very long. It, it sounds like you're very confident that that's him retrieving his wallet. So there's no other possibility really in your mind uh, about what that video depicts. For me, uh, like I said, I'm, I'm 99% sure I, I leave 1% open for error. But the, the haircut, the square face, the upturned collar, the big watch on his wrist... Um, even the way he kind of slouched, everything to me says that it was Larry. Even though the video is not clear and you can't really zoom in or look at it closely, I'm certain by all of those details that it's Larry. How confident are you that the FBI shares your view on the identity of the person in the video? I'm not confident. I, I don't, I mean, I don't know what the FBI believes or what they're doing. But my personal theory is, you know, it might be something like with the whole Whitey Bulger scenario where you had this sort of crime boss, this gang boss that had an in with the FBI. Um, and I think the FBI might just, you know, I, I feel like they might actually have a lot more information, but they're not 
investigating it to protect other people. But I just feel like there's something up with the whole scenario. I've never really understood. I know at the time I was young and probably not as confident as I am now, but I still was in a position where I saw every person that entered the museum during the day. And all of the, like I said, all of those construction workers, I had access to all of the people that were sort of behind the scenes at the museum. And I just, no one's ever, outside of that one questioning, no one's ever really asked me about it. The most involvement I had with the FBI, for a while they were keeping tabs on on Randy's whereabouts. So every now and then for a few years after the robbery, they would call and just ask if I had heard from Randy or if I knew where Randy was. That, and that's it. That's the, uh, that's the extent. I never really... I felt like no one ever really took me too seriously. And I don't really understand why. Did anything strange happen at the museum after the theft? I mean, it's the sort of thing that you hopefully would have never experienced. I don't think anyone had ever experienced a theft of that magnitude. So it's hard to really know what would be normal and what would be strange. Um, I mean, it, it all was strange, but... I mean, there's nothing like that sticks out as sort of like, oh, the thieves have come back or something like that. Sure. Yeah, I guess it's kind of hard to quantify what's strange after what just happened, right? Right. I mean, it, it's the sort of thing that, you know, it would be like it would be like if an earthquake just happened right now. For me, everything that would happen after it would be strange because I have experienced little earthquakes here, but I've never experienced experienced anything where i'd seen the ground rip open right and so everything would be strange after that you seem very trusting of your colleagues and based on the explanations you gave that sounds warranted but was there anyone at the museum that suspected that the theft was aided by another museum employee people at the museum themselves wondered about the wealth of information they seem to have about getting around the museum or um, there was a discussion I had with uh, like some of the Boston Globe people about the fact that the museum was pitch black because without the remember it's uh, the robbery is happening in the evening. The museum is closed down. There's no lights in the galleries. This is something I'd never really thought about until this discussion had happened. But it is true that you wouldn't have seen anything because it's it's completely dark. So the thieves had to kind of know what they were doing a little in advance because the the lights weren't on and they weren't necessarily easy to figure out how to turn on. So they either either would have to know where the lights were to get the light switches on or they'd have to just kind of know where the paintings were and using a flashlight uh, take them that way. It wasn't. Either way, it's not an easy scenario. So there are things like that that just cause you to stop and and wonder. But no one ever pointed fingers saying, I think it was this person or I think it was that person. Before 2015, when you called the FBI hotline, had you ever proactively contacted the people involved with the investigation with information you thought would be helpful? No, because prior to that, I didn't see anything that, you know, really necessary necessary for me to be involved with. I think most of the reporting that I had seen up to that date was talking about how Rick lived in New Hampshire, or there was reporting about, oh, now it's X many years, or, you know, from time to time, there was some, there was some art thief that was in jail that claimed that he had the paintings in a hanger or something. You know, there were all these sort of random stories, but none of them really had information that was relevant to me or my experience. Is there anything that hasn't been done that you think could be helpful in recovering the artwork? It's interesting because so much time has passed. It's sort of like those cold cases. It's maybe, maybe there's a DNA test that they could do on the paint chips that might be helpful. A lot of the key players that have been involved with the robbery or are, are, are passing on and you're losing those connections so without something like this 
like like you guys giving me the opportunity to talk about it or reflect upon different details without those those recordings or those questions or just going back and you know piecing together everyone's different stories or the different things that they remember maybe that's something i don't know if something like that has ever been done but you know until now no one's really been asking me about what's your story what's your memory you worked at the museum you you sat there at that desk what do you recall Uh, up until this point that's not something that was done to me Empty Frames is a co-production of Crawl Space Media and Audio Boom with original music by Jared Jansen. Thank you very much for listening. Follow us on Twitter at empty underscore frames. We'll be back in two weeks with a great interview with an interesting guy named Arthur Brand, who is an art investigator. And then what you read is these thieves were amateurs. Well, they, they were not because they did the job, didn't they? If they are alive, they are reading this and they smile at each other. They think, what are they talking about? 